Welcome into Film Tank, the weekly podcast that covers both new and classic cinema. On this episode of Film Tank, we cover our second part of our top six of 2017 as we discuss the 2017 year that was in more detail. If you would like to get in touch with Film Tank, you can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, filmtankshow.com, or on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Diekman. Hey there again, everybody, and welcome back to our top six of 2017. Uh, again, Alex Diekman, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan. Hey. Hello hey, again. Hey there. Yeah. Hey, hi. Hey. Oh, hey wow. there. Oh, you betcha. Oh, yeah. So, uh, it's we- a gold one out there. <laughs> We have t- <laughs> we have twelve categories that we're going to discuss about twenty seventeen, um, and do you guys want me to start off and, sure. and just symmetry? Symmetry. Yeah, there you go. Do we want to do the negative ones first, or or, or just go in order? Or do whatever? we? Uh, I was going to say I wrote them down in order that we wrote them down. Okay, so okay. we just want to go with that. Yeah. Okay. And and the way I did this at least yep. uh, was I did an actual person who I picked for this, uh, or an actual. Thing that I picked and a runner-up. Oh, okay. If that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. No, sorry. That was that a very was... confusing way to put a very simple thing. That's the way I roll. <laughs> Sounds so. good. Yep. Okay. So, best actor. We'll start there. Um, and I actually chose James McAvoy from Split for this. Oh. Um, the reason being um, because he stood out to me the most in a good way. Mostly because I think James McAvoy is not a very good actor, um, and I thought he Mr. put on Filth. Yeah, that was a very bad film, uh, and he put on a very solid performance here. Not just because he was playing all of the different personalities, but because I felt like his normal parts throughout the film, where he was acting with other people, I thought he delivered very well, um, and I thought he just for the entire year was always the person who I looked back and said, man, I, I, I liked him the most of anybody I saw in a leading actor role. So, uh, James McAvoy was my winner for this category and my runner up, uh, actually was Hugh Jackman and Logan, who I thought was fabulous. Hey, um, mostly because he had a lot of range going from the Wolverine character who shows up at multiple times throughout this film, but also playing this old man who really does just want to fucking die. Um, and then the idea of him playing his clone here, the much younger self, almost like Project X level. Yeah. Um, I thought Hugh Jackman was great uh, in that role and, and really just hammered it home. So he's my runner-up for I best agree. actor. He was great. Yep. I don't have any runner-ups. I okay, just got okay. My... that's fine. Okay. For best actor, I have Milton Little Rail. Howry from Get Out, otherwise known as the best friend from Get Out. Oh, okay. Just because I feel the like... The guy who I called uh, Hannibal Buress. Yes, yes, that's, that's that's who you called. Yeah, I, yeah. I just saw a slightly chubby, funny black I, guy. I think in a film with so many different highlights, I think like his performance, however 
small it might have been relative to that of uh, Daniel Kaluuya's lead performance in that, which was really good as well. I just really liked uh, Howery's performance because it was sort of a proxy for every person in theater. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's kind of giving that horror uh, audience a meta yeah. mouthpiece. This, this is this is the meta mouthpiece, like where you have like the you have the opening scene from from Scary Movie Two, or you have like the one woman who's very loud and like talking about like giving commentary for the film. Yeah. Well, that person is now in the movie and is now giving commentary to the main character and telling like you really shouldn't go there because they're going to make you into a fucking sex sex slave. Yeah. And then at the end, being like, I told you not to go in that fucking house. <laughs> yeah, no, I was a huge fan of him. Yeah, so yeah. Um. I'm doing it the opposite of you. Now I know what you meant. Because I quit. But anyway, I'm going to say my runner-ups first. Okay. And then say and, and we can we can just do that. Then. That's okay. fine. Yep. Uh, my runner-up is Hugh Jackman from Logan. Okay. I right pretty on. much thought he was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, in any other year, I probably would have chosen him. And especially because Wolverine is like my first love when it comes to cinematic superheroes. And not only does he get to have a great ending chapter, but he himself, I think, has grown as an actor so that by the time he got his ending, he was more than up to the task of finishing it himself. And the scenes with him uh, as a battered old Logan uh, just far surpassed my expectations from what we were going to get from him, and I'm so glad for that. Uh, But my best actor, uh, I have to go with Colin Farrell from... The Killing of a Sacred Deer. I think a lot of people are going to write his performance off, not as bad, but as being a typical Yorgos Lanthamos. Um, so? Yeah, like, <laughs> you know, dry and didactic character. But holy shit, just two things, which is that A, I just thought he was fantastic and hilarious and whatnot. But man, if there's not a better role that encapsulates men in 2017, I, I will not have seen it because the whole movie is Colin Farrell refusing to take responsibility for anything bad that he is directly the cause of and doing it in the most dry and just humorless way possible. And um, from him making a scene in his own kitchen with the drawers and the, I won't spoil it, but the questions he repeatedly asked his wife to him lashing out at the Barry Keown character uh, about uh, possibly having sex with a certain character in his life. Just every moment in his, uh, to uh, my final thing, to him dragging his own son across the hospital floor in an effort to try to wake him out of a clear paralysis, which he is a fucking doctor, so he knows better. It, or, it's it's just my performance of the year. when his son uh, does not want to eat and he starts forcing <laughs> donuts in his yeah. mouth. <laughs> this is a movie that walks the line between horror and comedy, which is that if you watch it and you don't laugh, you're you're a normal person. I totally understand it. But man, did I find this hilarious. And it's mostly which, because of him. Which this is right in line with what The Lobster did as well. Yeah, I mean, but instead of yeah. being like a poignant film, this was just a darkly uh, mean film. And I, I loved it for that. So mm. Colin Farrell uh, in The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Yeah, no, he was fantastic. <laughs> Sounds like I would love it. Oh, no, yes. it, it's a it's yeah, a very it. good film, and he gives a great performance. Not, I don't want to go to this deep, but he was going to be my runner, my second yeah, runner yeah. up. So he was up he, there. He yeah. was he was on my my radar. So, yeah. Yeah. 
So best actress I will follow suit and, and give runner up first now uh, is actually Florence Pui from Lady Macbeth. I'll say that's my runner up as well. Okay. Yep. Um, I thought she was fabulous. Um, completely stole the entire film away um, and gave just a performance that would be very acceptable if it was a man in that kind of performance. But yeah. because she's a female... Um, it's maybe viewed by certain people as being like, oh, look at this little rebel. Uh, but at the same time... <laughs> scamp. Yeah. Um, from the very onset, really, which is probably like 20 minutes in when she performs the first real action of this film, yeah. uh, through the entirety of it, just a very refreshing, wonderful performance that I, I thought she was just fantastic in this. I'm not naming her as my run-up for one scene only, but if I were to... It's for the breakfast scene uh, where she has breakfast with her father-in-law. Mm-hmm. And um, that alone is just a an amazing showcase of her talents uh, to somehow master both comedy and also dramatic. Because I'm not saying it's a laugh-out-loud scene, but her <laughs> stoicness is so absurdly hilarious to me that it makes that scene become a million different things at once. But, man, um, and this would be a a film for Dusan because if you want to talk about uh, and films have gotten very much just embracing of this but if you want to talk about a cringeworthy moment uh, oh. the climax of this film is pretty much like yeah I mean I think most films gonna... don't go there no but it it went there and it like committed to it right as they, <laughs> even the films that do go there like let's say a Hostiles it's mm-hmm. also it's usually incidental where here yeah. it's um, no the main character is consciously going there and it's like drawn out mm-hmm. as well too. And then you have the uh, inverse, not inverse necessarily, but the continuation of that, whereas the explanation and kind of the culmination of everything. And yeah. then uh, the separation between the white and the black care. Oh man. Yeah. yeah there's a lot going on. And yeah. she completely makes this movie. Yep. And it's, and it's a fantastic performance by Florence. We in, in yeah. uh, Lady Macbeth. Uh, my best actress was Gal Gadot. I thought she was great in Wonder Woman. And um, I guess I never really expected, after all I really knew from her was from the Fast and Furious series, I expected her to be a great superhero character, but she is that. And she um, made this film really her own and made this character her own. Uh, obviously, a lot of help coming from um, the direction that she received uh, from Patty Jenkins and also from... Collaboration that happens with with a film, but at the same time, uh, Gal Gadot gives a wonderful superhero performance as Wonder Woman, and she's my best actress of the year. Go ahead, Jusa. My favorite actress is Frances McDermott from Three Billboards. Hey. Even though Three Billboards was not one of my favorite films this past year, yeah. I would have to say that she gave one of the strongest performances of any film that I saw in the past year. Is like I just really enjoyed what she brought to her role in that film. Um, re- regardless of, of whatever you might feel about about the rest of it, is like I just feel like that was a very, very strong showing on her part, and I'm rooting for her. Frances McDormand is weird yeah. because for me, she feels more like the like actual best actress of the last generation instead of Meryl Streep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because like she actually does roles that are actually real and mm-hmm. not just like oh or challenging. The, the Academy will like this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um and she's had so many fantastic roles, even smaller things like 
um, the HBO series Livia Kittenridge, which I still haven't seen. Olive Kittredge, yeah. I'll, I'm sorry. Which, no, yeah, but yeah. But, but I've heard that's just fantastic. That's probably um, my favorite thing she's been in. Yeah. yeah. And she, like, everything she's in, either she makes it better if it's just a small role, or she's the best part of, um, she's just a fantastic actress. I agree. Yeah. Uh, my best actress is uh, Brooklyn Prince from the Florida Project. Yeah. And I can't believe that I'm giving that, well, not that. <laughs> I can't believe I, I'm doing this. I, I hold my fake award in such high esteem. that, <laughs> But no, but I, I can't believe I'm thinking of a child as someone who's better than every other actor or actress that I've seen all year, but it, it's true. Um, it's so rare for me to watch a child actor or actress not feel like they're acting, like that they have been coached, and yes, they're good at what they do formally, but this is the first time where I felt like I saw a child uh, actor like actually inhabit their role to the point where I couldn't tell if they were the world's greatest actor or if they had no idea they were being filmed. And that's how I know that her performance uh, was just magical in a sense. So um, I know I did that on purpose. <laughs> uh, so I absolutely loved her. And it almost makes me cringe when I think about what she'll do if she grows up and continues to be an actress because that doesn't usually work out very well. But man, I hope that if she's even a tenth of what she can do at the age of seven uh, as she grows up, uh, that'll be something to behold. It's going to be tough to live up to it will be. this performance. Kind but of like... hey, if you give this kind of performance, you can also retire because you, yeah. you did good. Yeah. Good that'll call. do, pig. Oh, God. <laughs> I wasn't calling her a pig. I was <laughs> just, I was just quoting fine. Babe. Yep. Thanks a lot, James Cromwell. Very good. <laughs> I love it. Best Supporting Actor uh, will be our next category. So my runner-up is actually uh, Adam Driver in Logan Lucky. That was almost my runner-up. Uh, he was fabulous, and he was also good in Star Wars uh, as Kylo Ren. But at the same time, his very monotone slow talking character with the did you just say cow flower <laughs> with his um fake arm uh and and all of the just continuous nonsense that happens with that um and at the same time even though probably the most dramatic moments happen with uh the main storyline yeah. uh Adam Driver has very interesting dynamics throughout this entire film uh, and I thought he just gave it a fabulous performance here. Great. Uh, and my best supporting actor was a really easy choice for me. It was Luke Evans in Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. As I thought he very easily performed a fantastic role as Gaston um, and just gave a very showy, wonderful performance in Beauty and the Beast. Right. Now, right. Best supporting actor is Harrison Ford. Ah. Wow! And Blade Runner 2049. I'm it. Yeah, it took I, him about two hours to get there, but when he once he did, yeah, it was like he <laughs> brought a lot to his role in that in that respect. It's like I I liked how he continued on uh, from the role of Rick Deckard from the original Blade Runner. I felt that he actually brought something to this role in 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 the time that he was actually on screen, and yeah, I I just. It felt good to see him back in that in that sort of space. And he actually got to punch Ryan Gosling in the face. <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah. Even if it wasn't on purpose. I gotta say, I'm not a Harrison Ford fan, like at all. I basically think he's one of the most overrated actors ever. And I, I mean, did... that comes 
front to bear with being one of the most iconic I agree. stars. I'm just saying, like, this yeah. is where I come in as right. an entry point. However, I will say, compared to his tenure as Han Solo in The Force Awakens, which mm-hmm. I actually did appreciate him in that. Like, right. I thought he did uncannily slip back into that role. Yeah. This felt like an actual, like, coming back to actually give something to his character mm-hmm. in a way that I was not expecting. So I, I totally understand that. Yeah. Part. So... My best supporting actor, that's what we're doing? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is, uh, runner-up is Barry Keown uh, in, uh, however you fucking pronounce his name, in The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Uh, his role as the psychopath uh, kid is so, like, I know I've, I've already given best actor to Colin Farrell, but this works because of both of them, I think. Uh I always forget that Alicia Silverstone plays his mother. That's true, too, oh, man. which is wonderful. Uh, but, like, once again, I am almost giving him this based on the spaghetti scene alone, which is just an amazing uh, monologue. Of, and so here's the thing. I've loved Barry Keown ever since I saw Mammal, which was a movie I was uh, in love he with. He even was in uh, Dunkirk he was. this year, so I a much more mainstream film. Yeah. Um, but here he's able to truly tap into something terrifying, but also like Lance almost does, uh, absurdly hilarious. And he so perfectly fits in. So he's just on the cusp of being my favorite supporting perform or actor performance. And how about the, the way that final denouement scene of this film plays out then too. Yeah. Oh man. Every time he smiles <laughs> in this movie, here's the thing. Psychopaths have smiled in cinema and nausea. Like, that is not a whatever. But there's something about when he does it that is it's like he's never seen a psychopath smile before. And it's really creepy. So I, I absolutely love it. Uh, my f- favorite supporting actor performance. So it, now i got to actually fucking look. Uh, oh, is Willem Dafoe in the Florida Project. He's, uh, I already talked about it in the previous episode, so I'll just say I reiterate everything I said, which is that every scene he's in in that film is fantastic. Like, those are actually, like, every time he was not on screen, and I say this as someone who loves every moment of that movie, but I was waiting for him to pop back in. And I love what he did because he somehow made a completely uh, three-dimensional character on the fringes. You know, he's not the star of this movie at all, and yet you walk away knowing so much about him and who he is. I mentioned um, Sean Baker's wide shots, uh, yeah. specifically the one they use for comedic effect uh, with the person on the motorized wheelchair. Yeah. But boy, uh, his wide shot after the power gets cut out oh, at yeah. the hotel of him walking across and you <laughs> see all the doors opening and people like yep. yelling at him. That is such like an Alfred Hitchcock moment. Absolutely. But at the same time, it's just so delightful with the coloring and the fact that it's Willem Dafoe. Oh, man. Yeah, no, from the character details of like the way he talks to uh, the birds in his parking lot to the way he handles the the old man pedophile. Mm -hmm. uh, This character is not being a different person from scene to scene. He just has so many different sides of him depending on like being a slumlord depending on which side is being called upon and he nails it so. yep. agreed pretty much yep. best supporting actress my runner-up was daphne keen uh in logan oh who plays uh she's a childish yeah. actor i think she's like 13 yeah, or 14 uh but playing logan's offspring for the most part not the one that he wanted but the one he probably deserves <laughs> uh um, but for the most part, even though I thought Hugh Jackman was fabulous in this, she is the one who stole the show for most people in this film. 
And I think for good reason and a big part, and we talked about this and it's been a long time, like almost a year now on the episode, but the idea that she really has no lines until very late in the film is probably a very good thing yeah. for her as a child actor, as her performance basically speaks for her itself as she is just this young female version of Wolverine who is pretty much on the same wavelength as Logan is. Um, I love how every time he tells her not to do something, he's only doing that because he knew he would do the same thing, and he never had a person to tell him not to do that. But, the man, the scene of her somersaulting and sticking her claws into uh, that random thug or whatever you want to call him uh, early on in the desert, boy, that's just great. And um, as a child actor, Daphne King just gives a great performance and uh, is a really nice compliment to Hugh Jackman in his final performance as Logan slash Wolverine. My actual choice for Best Supporting Actress was Bella Heathcote in Professor Marston in The Wonder Woman. Um, The idea of playing the third wheel in a marriage is very interesting to begin with, but then to join in that she was actually the probably brunt um, reason and like the sexual reason uh, behind uh, the Wonder Woman character and the idea of the fascination between a sexual being slash woman that you're interested in being in a marriage uh, as as Luke Evans' character is. Uh, I thought she had a fascinating character to play and I thought she did a fabulous performance uh, with it. And the idea of her being this college student that is in this really weird situation especially in in today's landscape where you have a professor the professor's wife who is also professor and this girl who enters into a sex triangle with them um is very uh i would say controversial uh but at the same time um this film shows that she is an adult and that this, you know, these people all love each other. So why can't it be normal? So, um, the whole story works really well together, but Bella Heathcote's performance, um, especially playing that weirdly damsel in distress early on. And then throughout the film, um, becoming her real own person, uh, I thought was just a fantastic performance. So she is my choice for best supporting actress. I do not have a choice for Best Supporting Actress, but as a follow-up, like a runner-up for Best Actress, I really enjoyed Haley Lou Richardson's uh, performance in Columbus. Oh, yeah. I think that she brought a a relatability, a pathos to being in that stage of your life where you're not sure, should I stay or should I go? Like, should, exactly. Like, that's, that's really what it is. Like, should she stay in, in Columbus, Indiana with her mom and look after her? Or should she go and further her own life? And there's sort of a uh, reason that's packed into that. But we're sort of, why is it even a question? Like, really, what's, what is it that's really holding her back? Like, I felt like that really came to bear through her performance. And I, I related to that. And yeah. I, I understood that. And I really, like appreciated that yeah right home yeah uh my runner-up is leslie manville in phantom thread mm-hmm. and i literally have to say nothing about it because it's i think 
anybody should go see it and see why, because it speaks for itself. Mm-hmm. She's absolutely fantastic. Uh, my choice... The old so-and-so. <laughs> for Best Supporting Actress is going to be really random. It's not a movie I don't think I've ever even mentioned. I think you know I saw it, Alex, but not because I probably because you saw it on Letterboxd. But my choice for Best Supporting Actress is Andrea Riseborough in Battle of the Sexes. Um, oh, yeah. As the not-so-secret lover of Billie Jean King. Um, the reason why... Andrea Riseborough, by the way. She's such a chameleon. Yeah. Like, I, I don't mean that as an insult, like, but every time she's in something and I like her in it, I forget that she's the same person that's in that other thing that I also really like her in. Yeah. And this was actually half the inspiration as to why I chose her for this, because as I was trying to narrow it down, I realized that to best exemplify something like supporting actress, she's probably in this movie for less than 50% of its scenes. So, you know, I almost forgot that that's, a, cause that's not part of the main plot line. The main mm-hmm. plot line is obviously King versus uh, the uh, chauvinist, who I forget his name already. Um, and she plays the subplot, which is that... Bobby the, Riggs. Bobby that's Riggs, name, by the way. that's right. Oh, wait, no, that's the guy. <laughs> wait, I thought those you were going for... You were going. I for... was, but when you first said it, I was thinking that was her name. Oh, was her like, name was Marilyn Barnett, which makes a lot more sense. Hey. Um, but the subplot in that movie should have probably been its own movie, which is Emma Stone's Billie Jean King and her uh, Marilyn character trying to navigate a public versus private relationship because they were very publicly friends and whatnot. Uh, the scene in which they meet, where. Um, they meet because uh, Billie Jean King was going to get a haircut, and she's the hairdresser, is one of the most sensual scenes you'll see all year of last year, where two people never once, like, take off their clothes, or, like, it is just a meeting of the minds of people being on the same wavelength. And everything she does from that scene on is just fantastic. Um, And I, I think she's just very underrated as an actress, and the idea that I would want, that I, I thought Battle of the Sexes was okay. Like, I didn't think it was bad, but certainly it was just okay. But the idea that that movie wanted, or got me to want to see a whole other movie with the same actress, which her and Emma Stone, in their own movie, uh, just says everything I think needs to be said about her performance. Andrew Risenborough is kind of weird because she's really been not a easily visible person yeah. after she kind of became known in Birdman, yep. Yep. which is now three and a half years ago. Uh, but uh, I was surprised and thought she gave a very wonderful performance in a very small role in uh, the film Nocturnal Animals, yeah. which I saw just for the first time a few weeks ago Great. with uh, her and then the scene where she's married to Michael Sheen and they have a very... Um, very casual contract yes. between them. Yep. Um, but that was a very loud scene in terms of these these people wearing these clothes and their yep. makeup and their hair that is not normal but at the same time trying and it yeah it was a it was a wonderful performance by her in a very small scene again. I think Battle of the Sexes is, is the next evolution as far as it's the closest she's gotten so far to becoming even more of a star in a movie. And so it's I just can't wait if she can hopefully make that next step. Agreed. Which apparently, and we talked about this, she was in four films that were at Sundance this year, I think. Yeah, she's yeah. climbing. Yep. So, best scene. And this is a, this was a fun one for me, as I had <laughs> so many 
things that I wanted to include. Uh, the one that was the easy pick for me. But uh, the one that was the runner-up was was right there for me. I feel like uh, I know what at least one of them is, but say what your runner-up yeah. is. So the runner-up was the prison escape scene in Guardians 2, huh. um, which was a really easy pick for me because, A, I absolutely love Michael Rucker's performance in uh, both the Guardians films, but specifically in Guardians 2. Uh, he has this very easy-to-understand character, I feel like, uh, but at the same time... Um, he, for the most part, for me, steals the show in Volume 2, even though I know you loved this film, Nick, yeah. for the most part. Well, really liked it, I guess we yeah. could say. Um, and then really liked Ego's character uh, as well. But Yondu, for me, uh, was, was the best part of, of Guardians 2. And this scene where we have the song playing in the background uh, and him putting the new shield or whatever you want to call him on his head and then whistling as the as the arrow flies and kills off all of the people who um betrayed him yep <laughs> um including taser face <laughs> yeah um that was Which is a fab- fabulous scene narratively and thematically like that's the culmination of his kind of i wouldn't say mini arc but he's not a the main character mm-hmm. but from the very start of where his allegiance kept wavering between Peter or his band of rebels, and that is a very clear message in which he finally makes his decision. Yeah, but the interesting thing is that we have him, for the most part, at the very end of this film, proclaiming that his allegiance was always with Peter, but at the same time, he was also trying to embody this weird mix between both kind of things but he was always going to lean that way it's so it's, yeah. it was code switching i would say that he was always with peter the point was peter didn't always think of him as a father yep. and that hurt sure. him yep so that was more mostly the big thing yep but yeah but yeah that seems fucking awesome yep. uh and then by far the best scene for me of the entire year and it's hard because it could just be this small scene uh that encapsulates it but the entirety that surrounds it is just by far the best part of the film and that's the throne room scene in The Last Jedi. Um, from the moment that Rey enters the room, uh, and then she gets thrown around the room by Snoke, uh, her lightsaber gets taken, uh, we have the demeaning of Kylo Ren, uh, and then you have the just absolutely fabulous uh, turn where Snoke is split in half. And then the lightsaber just slowly levitates and uh, is taken by Rey. And then you have the just amazing fight scene between her, Kylo Ren, and the Imperial Guard for the most part. Which, they have another name, but I can't remember. Praetorians. Okay, thank you very much, Tucson. That's why why I keep him around. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I know words. Yeah. (laughs) That whole scene was just absolutely fabulous. And one of the best scenes in the history of the Star Wars franchise. So that was my best scene of the year. For sure. Okay. My best scene of the year was the auction from Get (laughs) Out. That, um, that, yeah, that was when, when there are so many great scenes in Get Out, but that is the point where it, it cements that, this is not okay. This is not good. <laughs> this is this is not a good situation. Uh-oh. And then, then you realize what what 
Like, why is Rose leading him away in order to talk about something, in order to keep him away from the auction, and why they're being silent, and oh my god. It's just so deeply why, why is Milton being so nice to him? Yeah, why? It's like, he's got he's got an eye. He's, I know it works. He wants his eye. I know it works audio-visually mm-hmm. for aesthetic reason that it's a silent auction, but symbolically why it's a silent auction is just one of the most, like... Just realist yeah. things ever that yeah. it would be. So, yeah, anyway. it would be. It's like, oh my god. Yeah, it's uh, it's chilling. It's yeah. very, very chilling. Um, <laughs> probably one of the most uh, striking scenes of the entire film. But uh, yeah, the auction from Get Out. Um, my runner-up is "quote unquote" the monologue from "Call Me by Your Name" uh, oh, yeah. for best scene. It's mm-hmm. Michael Stuhlberg's moment in that movie in which he lays bare to his own son uh, a possible life of regrets but also of such highs that he hopes his sons hold on to uh, even if that means holding on to pain and you know talking about it cannot do it justice it's just something just to be seen to be believed Um, I have not seen it but is it on par with um I'll say whatever you're going to say, yes, because it's that good. But I want to know what you're going to say. Is it on par with um, the monologue from Magnolia? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, as far as, like, it's actually that kind of a thing as far as, like, the movie slows down, mm-hmm. allows a somewhat minor character. I mean, not minor, but he was obviously always just in, in the... You have a majorly cathartic revelation yeah. almost about almost, someone which just yeah. like a, a son doesn't pay too much attention to his parents until that parent makes their voice heard and and that's what was part of the uh i would think the catharsis of it yeah. but also of course the way it sheds a light on his relationship with his wife and uh, uh mother. elio's mother yeah. um but yeah that scene is fantastic it's it is by far the best scene in the film, yep. which the great thing about it is it, it almost catches you by surprise and it's at the very end of the film too. So yep. it's just fabulous. I agree. But my scene of a year and you can have my Uh-oh. cinephile card or my goodwill. Give me that shit. Yeah, I know. I, I don't care, but my, I'm not going to say the best scene. My favorite scene of the year is the long take in three billboards. Uh, the moment in which after Sam Rockwell's character is done crying because he's uh, heard of the sheriff's death of Chief Willoughby. While he walks over from the station over to the advertising agency while uh, his master's voice by Monsters of Folk, which is an album that I grew up on. I was an original hipster. I have that album on vinyl from Record Store Day 2007 in a limited edition blue (laughs) vinyl. Anyway... But I absolutely love that song, yeah. and the fact that that's playing, which his master's voice is such a creepy connotation for what's happening in that scene. Here's the thing. One more minute of time, speak about empathy. This just says all you need to know about me, so maybe I'm a horrible person. But what <laughs> happens in that scene is that he starts walking over there, and I think a lot of people who don't like the movie, which is fair, are turned off by him no matter what. And they see a scene in which that guy... He brutalizes somebody. <laughs> exactly, which is exactly what he does. Yeah. Here, but the way I experienced that scene is that from the moment he started walking away from the bathroom, I just had like a sinking feeling of despair mm-hmm. because I watched him walk across 
that street, hoping he would turn around at some point. Right. It's not so much that I like uh, I'm okay with what he does, mm-hmm. but I can understand why the heartbreak unfortunately led to a horrible decision. You hope that every single moment that he was actually going through and doing something that he would just stop and like go right. back. Yeah. And yet I knew that that wouldn't happen. Right. So because I, in my opinion, felt a lot during that scene mm. to a song that is tied to some of my most formative musical years mm-hmm. uh, in a, I think, gorgeous long shot uh mm-hmm. long take uh as he walks from literally like we get we go on different planes i mean we're down on the street we're up in the office we're looking down on the street we're going back i mean just that whole thing um i feel like that scene is a microcosm for the film as a whole and as the black cop new sheriff mm-hmm. looks on and i know people probably hate this line but when he shouts at caleb landry's character see i have a problem with white people too I believe him. Like, I don't think he's trying to be, yeah. like, he's trying to necessarily discard his racism. Yeah. But I do think that's the point of his character, so to speak, mm-hmm. is that his racism is almost, He's like, just a hateful person. Exactly. Yeah. So, anyway, I love that scene, and every time I watch it, I, I unfortunately, but I feel for him. Yeah. Until the moment he makes contact. I'm, right. I'm not saying that, but it's like a slow-motion train wreck that I hope doesn't happen until right. it does. Yeah. Also, mm-hmm. white people are the best. Yes. <laughs> anyway. Finally, I've been waiting all night for you to say that. Uh, so, best action sequence. Um, sometimes this falls in line with best scene, but uh, I picked a couple different uh, that were not involved with best scene. So, the runner-up, I have... Dan's <laughs> dancing now. That's great. Uh, I was stretching my arms. That's sure. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the battle in the catacombs between Ruby Rose, Common, and uh, Keanu Reeves in John Wick 2. Oh, wow. Uh, man, the sound of the gunshots is pew, always an easy pew, way pew. to get to my heart. Um, and then the way that that Bastard. scene escalates. Thanks, buddy. Um, and then we have Common and uh, Keanu Reeves fighting in the middle of the street and then end up having a drink at the bar. Um, that whole scene just plays out just wonderfully. Yeah. And I mean, that isn't necessarily even the most high, highly recognizable action sequence in the film as you have the obvious one in the art gallery. But for me, that's, that's the best of that film. And, and I really enjoyed it. The best action sequence in the entire year for me though, uh, is the fight between Logan and Logan in the film Logan, oh. uh, between old man Logan and the young Project X Wolverine. Um, first of all, great CGI making uh, and slash and or slash makeup, uh, making Hugh Jackman look like his younger self. Uh, and at the same time, um, the idea of this younger stronger version of him that we would have seen in the original X-Men uh, going up against somebody who's just had a very influential death in his life. So he has all the reason to be able to overcome the younger version of himself uh, was thematically a fantastic scene, but also visually and everybody should be taking notes and this shouldn't be that hard. But if you're going to shoot a scene that involves CGI slash de-aging, put it at nighttime yeah. um, because it'll look that much better. Yeah. Uh, and this scene looked great and was just a great action sequence. So uh, the fight between both Logans in the film Logan was was my best action sequence of the year. Okay, my 
favorite action sequence of the year was the throne room from Star Wars for all the reasons that Alex listed before. But I want to bring my own personal contribution to this in that I I came across a thread on Twitter where somebody – It's a bad place to be. Yeah, it's a really bad place to be. I I don't recommend going on Twitter. (laughs) Um, But – I found a thread where somebody took um, footage of that throne room scene, like, you know, off-camera footage. Because it set it to the Benny Hill theme? Set it to, <laughs> set it to many different f- sort of, like, themes, including Mr. Blue Sky by Electric Light Orchestra. <laughs> okay. And holy fucking shit, did it match up with, see that. With, with multiple different iterations. It worked very well, and that just goes to show how beautiful and how balletic the the fight choreography of that scene was and when you when you sort of divorce it from the 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 whole of the film itself you're able to see how the sequence of events plays into not only what's going on between the Praetorians and Ray and and Kylo Ren but also how it's affecting the environment around them so you have that scene where uh Ray is is clashing with one of them Tears off one of their heads with lightsaber, and it just goes careening through the air over that one Praetorian who t- takes the, the the two sabers and is like doing his whole samurai dance thing. But then you see, like, wait a minute, oh, the this whole red veneer is just a curtain that's being burnt up, and you see how it's being burnt up over the course of the entire like rest of the fight scene, and it's all because of this one instigating factor and that continuity around it. And how and how it just comes together so well, just it's just extremely my shit. It's just so good. It is one of the most one of the most compelling fight scenes in the Star Wars franchise that is not even technically a lightsaber duel. And also, too, how about it? They're just fighting random people. They just have fucking fucking random people and finally living up to sort of the the reputation that those Imperial Guards were supposed to have that they just never had. Because you fucking finally gave them functional body armor and like moves and shit like that. That's awesome. Yeah. And to the one. I love the design of their like skies. Oh, like, yeah. Like they're not exactly skies, but whatever you call them. Yeah. Sifes. The one that yeah, falls into the random fan that's in there and just gets blown up into a million pieces. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. looks great. Yeah. It yeah. does. Oh, when, when, uh, <laughs> when, when, uh, I love it. Uh, one of the guys like has his like his whip that he like it, it, it wraps around like Ray's uh, lightsaber and he just like does that thing where he's just like wrapping it closer <laughs> to bring her closer. Yep. Oh my god, that was awesome! So really random question, and this yep. is going off on a very bad yeah. tangent so, that we shouldn't be going on. Hey. Do you think the Praetorian Guards were the original Knights of no. Ren? No, there's it, it's it's already. I don't think. Within, so disappointed within, right now. within the context of the film Just itself, <laughs> I don't think that there's anything that really meaningfully connects those two. And it's already actually it's already actually maybe been, they're raised parents. It's already been answered by <laughs> Ryan Johnson Everybody as to does. why he did not include the Knights of Rent in we, the actual film itself? Here, here's the only thing I'll say, and, and I'm, I'm not, because yep. nobody knows, and it's totally just not commented on, so there's no reason to think that unless yeah. you wanted to make that leap. But 
wouldn't it be fantastic if Ray was trying to save all of the people who were taken by that, and yet she ends up killing them? Uh, oh man, yeah, That'd be something. But see, my problem with the whole Knights of Ren thing is that it is so obviously tacked on. They do not give a fuck about those characters. I wouldn't be surprised if. If J.J. Abrams, the person who came up with those characters, forgot about them <laughs> in the final installment of this trilogy, and he was like, what's up with the Knights of Ren? Oh, I don't know. Fuck it. What are they doing? I don't know. They're fucking off somewhere in the fucking corner of the universe. I don't know. Just like Captain Phasma. We did, we just didn't, like what they did with Captain Phasma. We didn't have a fire to drop them into, she, so we just rolled. a good fight at the end. <laughs> did she? I thought so, between her and uh, Finn. It lasts for about 30 seconds. Yeah. I just meant it was like a good ending. Yeah. Not, I'm not saying thematically or narratively. I've, I've but... already spoken my piece about Captain Phasma, but yeah. just as a, as a recap, like she is the perfect successor to um, Boba Fett in that she just feels like a character that is working backwards from... from like Boba Fett, Bo- Boba Fett was created as sort of just like a stock character and he got killed off, and then eventually there was just sort of like this 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 cult fandom that formed around him, and it just sort of anointed him as like a badass character in its own way, and like the the extended universe sort of built on that, but it never really came to bear in the actual films itself. Versus Captain Phasma is a way of trying to reverse engineer a iconic character, and they just totally squander. <laughs> Yeah. and turn her into a stock character that just gets murdered and then they have to find a reason to like bring her back to get murdered again. She actually gets let out there by a droid. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> oh my god. Here here she is. <laughs> Beep boop boop. <laughs> Beep boop boop. Oh All right, Nick, go ahead, buddy. Uh, best action scene. Uh, my runner-up is... Uh, what I, I have two different names for the scene, so I'm going to say them both because they're hilarious. But one is John Wick tries to catch the subway. Haha. <laughs> the other title I give it is John Wick walks onto the set of the Warriors. Oh, but yeah. it's it's the scene in which John Wick is basically fighting all of New York's assassins, mm-hmm. and he's trying to get out of the, the the limelight, so to speak. And it's so wonderfully put together because it's not technically impressive because it's really a montage. You know, it's like every time he enters a new location, we cut to that location where there's mysteriously another assassin. So it's such a mess of like uh, structure but to me that's what just makes it all the more funnier and that's where I truly see that kind of Buster Keaton-esque inspiration Mm -hmm. come through where a man trying to do a simple task like you know just escape is running up against like his just the worst roadblocks ever and just the physical comedy and action that ensues between you know him the pencil and the one guy or him fucking Pencil. I know, or him and Common having a completely different story shootout where while Common's on the top floor and he's on the bottom and they're very not secretly trying to shoot each other while other people are walking on the same uh, walkway. I, I just think the whole thing is hilarious but also exciting from start to finish. My favorite action sequence of the year, though, is the first 
or what I would call prison guard boxing in a Brawl in Cell Block 99, where Vince Vaughn basically has to make his choice to be transferred to another prison, so of course he decides to beat the fuck out of a prison guard. But what makes that scene great is two things, which is one, the setup, which is that that prison guard was trying to goad this new prisoner in Vince Vaughn uh, to try to join his boxing program, which is such a staple of uh, prison exploitation film. Like That's like Penitentiary by Jamal Fanaka and a few other uh, well-known exploitation flicks. Like, that's what you do when you go to prison is you join the boxing program. Um, so I love the fact that his goading... <laughs> Vince Vaughn's character into doing that makes him the target because then when the scene actually starts and Vince Vaughn decides that he needs to tear him a new one um, that's what makes that scene believable as far as like instead of that guard trying to call for another person he just puts up his fist like okay like I said you should do this so now show me what you got even though he has no idea what he's in for Hmm. but of course the actual physicality of that fight it's pretty brief I think it's like a minute and a half maybe two minutes but every sound effect every punch every bone cracking uh, moment in that scene is just like it is what I look for in action for the most part which is something I haven't quite seen before because it's so disgustingly brutal that I both want to look at it but also can't steer directly at it Uh, what Vince Vaughn does with his femur uh, by the end of that scene is disgusting and uh, I'm always going to remember that and that was probably my favorite action scene good stuff so, best use of a song. Uh, we're back to this category. It was, uh, it was it was a it was a good category last year. It was. It might have been. I don't know. Uh, so, anyways, ah. my runner-up was uh, Jay and the Americans come a little bit closer hey. during the prison escape scene in Guardians Two. I brought up the scene earlier uh, in my runner-up for best scene, uh, and I love this song's complement to that uh, escape scene performed by Yandu, also with uh, Baby Groot and um, Rocket. Uh, it's an awesome scene, and this song just plays into that, as many songs do in the Guardians of the Galaxy universe, uh, and now other Marvel films, because, you know, they can't do anything original. Uh, my actual best use of the song was uh, the song Focus by the uh, group Hocus Pocus in the scene where Baby... Buddy and Darling are running from the police in Baby Driver. Ah. Um, so, uh, multiple things about this. <laughs> I have no idea what movie that was. Until yeah. <laughs> like, for whatever reason, Baby, Buddy, and Darling did. I got being serious. Yeah, did, no. did not tip me off. I'm, I'm, I was like, what the fuck? Yep. Is he? No, I'm, <laughs> anyway. I'm just spewing off nonsense. Continue. Um, however, I love the scene the first time I saw it, uh, as soon as. He kills off uh, the extremely annoying character of Jimmy Fox's bats. Uh, we then have him running, and you have the weird... There's almost like yodeling involved in the song and, and that kind of thing. But uh, that whole sequence is fantastic. I will say the reason why uh, that I, this was completely went over the top to be my number one is the fact that when I was watching this uh, the second time in my house with Emily... Um, our cat Gus was sitting in the room during this and he was just kind of, you know, hanging out the usual just sits around. He's a very lazy cat. But when this scene started um, and the music kicked on from this scene, 
he decided to just start jumping around and dancing <laughs> and have a good time. And he was running around the entire house during Aww. this entire scene. And there's other songs throughout this entire film. Well, yeah. But this specific scene, he was just laying there the pretty much the entire time. And this specific scene, he just got crazy. And So in a way, Gus had a hand in picking this. He did, actually. Yeah, that's pretty but cute. But he was way into this song for whatever reason. And I fully believe he was because he... He wasn't doing it at any other part of the entire evening except for this part with this specific song. And after it was over, he just went back to just sitting <laughs> around. So um, I loved that moment. And that's a, a big part of, of certain films is just the personal connection you have to it. But at the same time, I think it's a great scene and a great use of a song. So that's my choice for best use of a song. I originally did not have a choice for this, but... Um... Just jogging my memory right now, one scene that I really enjoyed that incorporated a pre-existing licensed song was the um, standoff between uh, Quill and – like between Star-Lord and his father, Ego, and having uh, the chain by uh, Fleetwood Mac playing in the background. That was a very climactic, very badass song to have like – I agree. With with this this sort of like titanic like battle between like two elemental forces in like this uh cavernous fractal like world. I I I thought that was fucking cool. Oh, I absolutely agree. Yeah, I love that. Um Are you done? Yeah, I'm done. Yeah. I will say my runner up is Fortunate Son by CCR and Logan Lucky. It's not so much that like that song is some kind of genius use, but that entire montage of where you get the Soderbergh money shot of how they pulled off the heist set to one of the most rockin' hillbilly songs of all time. I mean, that song's fantastic. Um, like, I will say no other moment in cinema... <laughs> made my heart like basically beat out of my chest because I was just so happy by what was happening on screen uh, was better than just hearing uh, Fogarty scream out, it ain't me, while uh, the Logan brothers are secretly pulling off all their devious plot twists and their heist, and it was just fantastic. Uh, my number one, though, is The Chain in Guardians of the what? Galaxy Volume oh, 2. Oh, shit, that's awesome. Um, yeah. Peter Quill, literally from the moment in which, uh, and this is half the reason why Kurt Russell as Ego is one of my favorite Marvel villains, but from the moment he says, that's why it pained me to put that tumor in your mother's head. Oh, man. You squished my Walkman and you murdered my my mom. (laughs) The fact that it goes from zero to 60 into the chain, um, first of all, the chain is probably the best use of music, uh, either one of those. Guardians movie has ever used. Uh, the Guardians movies has, or I should say both have, fantastic soundtracks. But that does not mean that on a scene-by-scene basis that, like, those songs are, like, I would say expertly utilized. Like, I enjoy it. They're because- better utilized than their, um, than the people who try to imposter those sort of scenes. Oh, I agree. Like, yeah. I'm not saying thought doesn't go into it yeah. or anything like that. But I think it's more fun to listen to the mixtape mm-hmm. than it is to, like, try to discern exactly why each and every song scored the scenes that they did. Right. 
But I feel like the chain was the culmination of that mentality of trying to find that perfect song. Because the besides the fact that Fleetwood Mac is literally a metaphor for the Guardians, in which their best impulses only come from working with each other, despite the fact that they as human beings barely can tolerate each other, mm-hmm. is like a metaphor for the Guardians right. in and of itself. And, of course, the lyrics as Peter Quill is trying to beat the shit out of his horrible father, uh, if you don't love me now, then you never will, yeah. is just one of the most poignant uh, things ever. So I, I absolutely love uh, that, especially because it plays in the beginning when he first meets his father. So it's like that should have been taken as a warning because Peter, we have to think of all this music is diegetic in some way. Even if he's not literally listening to it, it comes from his mother's mixtapes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the idea that that's even more poignant, that he didn't quite not heed his mother's advice, but pay closer attention to what he had in the past. Uh, it, it's just so fucking wonderful. So yeah. that's uh, The Chain by Fleetwood Mac in the climatic battle is my favorite use of the song. Good stuff. Yeah. Best score uh, throughout a film. Uh, my runner-up was Brian McCummer from It Comes at Night. Uh, I thought it was a very intriguing score yep. that wasn't necessarily super showy, but at the same time, uh, was a great part of of the film. It comes at night, so that was my choice for the uh, the runner up, and my easy choice for uh, best score was Alexander Desplat for uh, The Shape of Water, which was absolutely fabulous. Uh, I I have it on my iPod now, and I listen to it pretty regularly. Um, it's a wonderful score that has the same theme that plays throughout at multiple times, but at the same time uh, has wonderful works that happen throughout multiple scenes that are. Um, for the most part, original um, that is just wonderfully done uh, and then also follows that same theme throughout. So uh, wonderful work by him in The Shape of Water for my best score. For best score for me, I would have to choose uh, Blade Runner 2049. Mm -hmm. I mean, Hans Zimmer, there's a reason why Hans Zimmer gets chosen to work on things. It's because he delivers, he knows how to create these very sweeping, very epic scores that, that... play into a certain mold of film now as as disappointed as i was to hear about uh johan johansson uh, him oh yeah that just happened yeah, yeah yeah how he was taken off that film and how his with regards to his recent passing away which is deeply sad and yeah. it is a um it is a tremendous loss to the world of cinema and the world of music in general. I was going to say, because it feels like we just lost a, a Titan yeah. or a Alexander spot in the making because yeah. he's younger than mm-hmm. all of those. And yet it felt like he would have become the next one. He, um, he, even, even in his shorter career, I know I'm talking about the, the score for this and he hasn't worked on it, but it's just like to, to tangentialize off of it. Like, I feel like he is, one of those um he's one of he's one of those musicians he's one of those um conductors that i feel like he he's going to be looked back on as as a as a too dearly lost like evangelist counterpart he's going to be somebody yeah. on that on that tier he's going to people... be like the james dean of composers yes that's that's really what it is to say yeah, you know yeah, like yeah. like wh- how how did this happen? Right, you're right. It's just it's going to be nothing but tragic. But I, 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 I that is to say that I did like what I heard through the score of Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I liked the um, 
the return to some of the leitmotifs of the original Vangelis score in like Blade Runner. And yeah, I think it, it did enough to differentiate itself while still also like tying into its larger cultural legacy. So yeah. sure. Um, I have two runner-ups that I'll mention, which is that uh, Johnny Greenwood for Phantom Thread. Mm-hmm. Oh, that yeah. score is amazing. The reason why it's like the third out of these three that I'll mention is because I don't often listen to it solo. Like I think it just works basically perfectly in the context of the film, but as its own piece of music, it's a little brash to just like put on in the background, but it's fantastic. Uh, but my real runner-up is uh, the score for... Murder on the Orient Express. Oh, of course. I wake me up, wake me up. No, that was a trailer. I know that was a trailer. Fuck you. No, <laughs> but there are some gorgeous pieces of music buried underneath mm-hmm. that very land blockbuster. Uh, the piece that plays specifically during Poirot's uh, final revelation and accusation of the tribunal is the Last Supper. Really gorgeous. I know that that image is cheesy, but that score is actually pretty great, I yeah. think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my favorite score, and the one I've listened to the most, is this, uh, Michael Giacano's score for War of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, Says a lot. The track Exodus Wounds, which is kind of the main theme that permeates throughout the entire film, is a three-minute knockout for me. It is a... It, it just starts with like five piano notes repeated over and over and over until a very brash orchestra repeats the same motif. So nothing about this is original, so to speak. But it so perfectly emboldens what this franchise has done, which is started so small and then unfortunately had to sweep into such uh, sentimental territory. I don't mean unfortunately, I just mean like like tragically in the way that the fate of these characters had to you know, continue in. Uh, but that piece of music, uh, Exodus Wound, is like my favorite piece of film music in so long. And Michael Giacano, who's done so much uh, great work, like on the television series Lost and whatnot, I'm glad that more uh, movie directors are using him because he's fantastic. And uh, I will not think of that movie without thinking of that track. So, yeah. So best cinematography, which hey. uh, there were quite a few uh, great, and um, I, I didn't list him as an official runner-up, but I loved Roger Deakins' work uh, in Blade Runner, and I love his yeah. pretty much entire catalog. Um, it's been well documented that he's never won an Oscar, and though I don't think he did the best work this year, I really do actually hope he wins, just so he could have that on his career resume. Um so the two names that I'll mention, my runner-up was Dan Lauston for The Shape of Water. Uh, the cinematography for the film could kind of fall under the radar as there's so many other things through the film that are done so well. Uh, but I thought the way he moved the camera throughout the entirety of the film was just fantastic. And the same could be said for my, my actual pick for best cinematography, which was from uh, Drew Daniels from the film It Comes at Night, Mm. which was just a a wonderful film that had so many just fabulous technical elements uh, in the way that the camera moves throughout and the use of light throughout the film, the use of reflective surfaces. um, It was just teetering on Lubeski-esque throughout many parts of the film, uh, and it was just a wonderful work in a film that I guess I really wasn't expecting it to be that good originally so that's my pick for best cinematography absolutely 
My pick for best cinematography is Roger Deakins for, yeah. <laughs> for Blade yeah. Runner 2049. And my runner-up is It Comes at Night. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I what you guys just did. And there we go. Yeah. That's all you got. All right. I have no runner-up. Uh, mm-hmm. My best cinematography is Paul Thomas Anderson uh, yep. in Phantom Thread. It's his mm-hmm. first time being his own DP, mm-hmm. which I guess maybe that makes us pick a little biased, but I more than think he rose to the occasion because I don't think that it is like just effortless to be to be a director and then to slide into that role. I totally uh acknowledge the fact that I think DPs are half the reason why directors get praised, you know, it's that they are unwittingly a collaborator that almost goes unspoken for a lot of reasons even though they are half the reason why people love directors films. Uh, but the way he crafts every shot and every camera movement is, I feel like he's learned so much from his collaborations with Robert Elswitz and, and others. And, uh, I think we will be talking about his cinematography and phantom thread for years to come, not necessarily in like conversations of like all time greatest looking films, but in the concept of, uh, his career and what he was able to do without skipping a beat. Uh, he's just so clearly talented and i love him and call me <laughs> well moving on from nick's love affair with pta hey. uh and it's on mutual to, uh on to best visual effects so my i have a very far away runner-up uh and that is the shape of water specifically for the creature design which i thought was absolutely fabulous here uh definitely a highlight of uh guillermo del toro in his career is he has a lot of fantastic creature design, but I thought the creature here, uh, both with CGI and actual physical effects, was fantastic. Well played by Doug Jones yet again, but also well received on the screen. Um, this actually is probably the furthest away from the runner-up of any category I have, and I've said this before, but uh, my pick for best visual effects is far and beyond the best visual effects I've ever seen in any movie which was in War of the Plan- More for the Planet of the Apes. Um, the CGI in this film was so far and beyond anything that I feel like I've ever seen before. And the idea that the CGI for Caesar's character looks, A, so authentic and real, and at the same time looks so much like Andy Serkis's actual human form. <laughs> um Every single part of him and the other apes down to the way that their hair moves with the wind as it's blowing. Um, This is visual effects and computer generated imagery on a completely different level than, in my opinion, anybody else is doing at this point. Even the best people in the top budget uh, filmmaking. This was by far the best um, visual effects done with a computer that I've ever seen in my entire life. So... That was easily my pick for best visual effects uh, with War for the Planet of the Apes. Best special effects? I would have to say Star Wars. Yeah. I love those porgs, man. Those porgs. <laughs> the verisimilitude of those porgs, man. I just want to just wanna hug them, want to gobble them. Cook them for dinner? Gobble them up. Oh, I'm like, shoot. man, yeah. the, the screams so terrifying um yeah i would have to to give it to star wars in lieu of like having seen like war of the planet of the apes because i actually do enjoy like both the practical and the um computer generated special effects of it especially with the blue milk monster that was great <laughs> that was really great yeah yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. It's just <laughs> Thank you. Really no, fucked no, up. Tab. Yeah. Uh, Your turn. My best visual effect is a little movie called War for the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> it's so no contest. If if War for the Planet of the Apes only had Andy Serkis's CGI motion capture performance and creation, it would be a no-brainer contender for best special f- mm-hmm. uh, visual effect. The fact that this movie has just as stunning special effects outside of that performance is basically a miracle. Like I don't know how they did it. <laughs> Um, because that is just on par with its climatic avalanche or the way it uh, animates the other apes, which I feel like is no hard, uh, is is no simple feat because it it's easy to come up with technology. Well, not easy, but it's one thing to come up with technology that can animate, you know, these apes in in one way or another. But it's another thing to somehow come up with the animation that is so versatile that I truly believe Maurice to be a different character than Caesar and Bad Ape, love him or hate him, mm. uh, to be another, you know, and so on and so but forth. But they all look so real. Agreed. And they all feel so real. Agreed. And, just, and, yeah. and it's so so creepy and um, in a good in way. In a good way. Yeah. Not like Robert Downey. No, 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 no. no. It's, it's so creepy <laughs> in a way where I'm like kind of scared about our future as humans. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's easy, no brainer, uh, war for the planet of the apes. Yeah. So our last two categories are worst categories. Yeah. Let's be negative. Yeah. So my runner up for worst film of the year is the Netflix original film bright, which hey. was a total piece of shit. Yeah. Um, Will Smith and Joel Edgerton, um, and Netflix thought they had something on their hands here. Oh, but they still think they have it. That's fine. Uh, this was a complete fucking disaster. Um, and everything from the dialogue to the action sequence to the entire story was just a total, just throwing up, swallowing it again and throwing it all up again. Um, this film sucked and boy, it's really too bad that they're going to make a sequel to this. Am I going to be mad about whatever your worst film is? Probably not. Okay. My worst film is interesting because when I saw this film in the theater, I didn't hate it completely. But the more I've thought about it, the more I think that this is just a bad film and it, it, it's just so bland and whatever. Yeah. And that is this science fiction film, Life, uh, directed yeah. by Daniel Espinosa. Um, I heard that was better than uh, Cloverfield Paradox. <laughs> I did hear that. But... Yeah. There's not much to do to be better than the Cloverfield product. Um, This is such a boring, mundane story that has been done so many times. Um, And it also has such a negative outlook on humanity and also um, the idea of of the way that a story should be told. the more I think about it, the more that I feel like this is just a shit film that I wish I hadn't seen in theater, <laughs> just in general. I'm so surprised that you somehow saw this theater, or this movie in theaters, and I didn't. Yeah, because this weird. seems sort of up your alley. Yeah, no, I, I wanted to. And, but... But, but the idea of, of where this film ends and its conclusion. Which um, was set up for the Venom movie, right? Yeah. It's you think it is. Yeah. You think it would be. Yeah. People were really thinking that that was they going to be. They were incorrect. Yeah. Um, at any rate, um, the the ultimate conclusion of this film is so, A, disheartening. At the same time, 
it makes me feel like I wasted my time <laughs> at the cinema because they went for very similar to the Cloverfield Paradox where they went for a very showy finale that's like that contradicts everything for this entire film. Um, so yeah, I thought it was a complete mess and I was very excited to see this. It was, it was early in February of 2017 and it was, you know, uh, Rebecca Ferguson was coming off of mission impossible. Jake Gyllenhaal's always very reasonably thinking that he's going to give a good performance. And then you had the, uh, interesting Ryan Reynolds inclusion and with this film, even though he's killed off early on, which is not much of a spoiler because it's in the first like six minutes. Um, but at the same time, this movie just was not good. So worst film of 2017 for me is life. So worst film of last year of 2017 is mother. I say that with absolutely, I say that with absolutely no, reservation I, I don't you? i don't say it yeah. in a way to but it was so punk to to perform some sort of uh of disdain. come at me bro yeah i'm not i'm not trying to perform disdain for this film i have nothing to prove in my dislike of it i just yeah. think that this film is i i find it legitimately toxic I feel like there are a lot of great th- I feel like there are beautiful parts of this film that are components of filmmaking rather than they are the product of the film itself as a whole and I think about it on both an allegorical and a a strained literal level both of these interpretations are just so toxic and counter to the to what their own intentions are where on the allegorical level, it tries to frame it as though like there's a redemptive capacity within human beings to stem away from, from, from this, this sort of like corrosive, um, like, uh, uh, of, of this, this sort of corrosive relationship with mother earth when really it's just the character of God himself, who is not so much in this portrayal, um, incapable of fault but incapable of admitting fault and then sort of like transposing them onto his wife who he then ritualistically brings up and then sacrifices in order to bring her back in a more pliable and younger and more fertile sort of incarnation which is just which is just really really fucked up but on weren't you so surprised many... when Jennifer Lawrence and Darren Aronofsky broke up after this movie see here's the, here's the thing okay that goes to the literal level of this there goes like, to I'm liber- sorry but you we, can't we've ta- write that we, we've talked we, we've talked a lot about this on our actual episode but just to to bring that back up again on the literal level mother is supposed to I interpret it as a as a film that's supposed to be about an artist about a poet who is mining his personal life in order to bring into fodder for his actual art, right? And eventually he takes and he takes and he takes and he leaves his wife and eventually moves on to something else and the way that he uses up people in his life in order to move on as as fodder for his art and stuff, right? There's a disturbing parallel. There's a disturbing parallel between the relationship between Darren Aronofsky and Jennifer Lawrence and not only that, but the ending of that relationship how that relationship ended? Did you read about that? Where it was just like, on 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 some commentary, uh, Darren Aronofsky was it like forgetting Sarah Marshall, where he didn't put on pants. No, Darren Aronofsky said that the reason why they broke up is because they had an age difference, 
And then he goes on to date well, that's weird, another actress who is even younger than Jennifer Lawrence. I'm just like that was the problem. The age was you know too little of a disparity. It's it's like it's like you're not even aware that you just wrote yourself into your own character and you are in fact portraying that character. Yeah, I, I'm I think he's actually well aware of it. I like the theory <laughs> that like they didn't break up over any like big reason or anything oh, oh like no. that. But no, no, this is really that bad for me. Scraping, <laughs> scraping uh, butter no, on the toast because he she he can't he cannot he cannot deal with yeah. a confrontation. This no, early but because in the while they were still together, she was defending mother, which is totally fine, like right. whatever. Uh, but I like the idea that she just broke up with him because she couldn't <laughs> she couldn't stand him talking about mother, like post mother, yeah. like just like that was the only thing, like just his post, like mother is punk. As far like, as Darren Aronofsky's made very good films in the past, and then this yeah. one comes out, it's like oh no, true. I mean, yeah. I haven't seen a Darren Aronofsky film in like. A while now, so maybe I need to go back to these and be like, oh, maybe I got some clarity on this shit now. The wrestler uh, is very good. The wrestler, yeah. Is Black Swan is very good. One of my favorite movies. Yeah, Black Swan is good. Too. But yeah, I, I, um, mother. Yeah, it's just, it's, yeah, I, I, I'm, I, 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 I went to go see this movie twice. I went to go see this movie twice. <laughs> I'm sorry. And, and uh, well, well, the second time wasn't because I enjoyed it because I wanted to see what my f- friend's reaction was going to be to it. It's like, but it's just, it's, it's not. <laughs> Did they love it? No, they hated it. it was, <laughs> yeah, it's, wow, that was worth it. Yeah, it was worth it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I honestly just don't like Mother. It's a, yeah. yeah. Uh, my worst film, no contest, is Bright. <laughs> On Netflix. Uh, the reason why I chose this because I had like a few half star movies, so like technically it could have been any one of them. Like they're all the same shit in my eyes. But Bright for me is representative of the worst of Hollywood right well, now. Well, first of all, it's got Will Smith. So. It does, and I know I hate Will Smith. Whatever. But it is this dropping on Netflix. Let's not pay attention to numbers. Let's green light a sequel. And let's pretend like we're making something just because a studio exec is saying they're getting the returns that they want. Here's the thing. Can I jump in really And quickly? I'm saying, before you say that, mm-hmm. and that's separate from the fact that the movie is absolute shit. Here's the thing. What I love about Netflix's response to the feeling of Bright is that Really, they are very secretive about the release of the numbers of people who watch things. So when they release the numbers after its opening week or whatever it was, saying 11 million people watched this, I'm like, yeah, well, how many people watched the first uh, episode of Orange is the New Black? They're not going to release those numbers. Exactly. Because the number is probably much higher. Do you know how many times Netflix will put out a movie without you telling it to do that? Right. Just saying. when when they release the numbers, that means that they are on the fucking defensive. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but the reason why I hate Bright as a movie, just outside of it being indicative of everything that's wrong with the world and with cinema, is that Bright is the worst version of a studio exec who's his first week on the job greenlighting a movie pitch. It's basically... What if, like, a real cop drama was set in the middle of a, you know, fantasy world? Like, that 
is all this movie is. This movie does not, because that could be an okay movie, but because the movie is not interested whatsoever in actually creating a world or creating real characters, um, we are just left with horrible, uh, I would say, not product placement, but political placements of things like, I guess, fairy lives don't matter today, and other horrible, stupid not real life analogs and the way that this movie treats women is awful in my opinion because the only female character of note is mute or the only other time females show up is in a strip club so and i'm not saying this movie has to be a feminist movie or anything like that but this is so blindly inept as to what the world is like today, is that a, it's kind of scary. This is a very... I'm genuinely worried David Iyer has never set foot out of his house. <laughs> like, someone should call the cops and maybe, like, see if he can answer the door. Hey, hey, you want to go for a, for a car ride in, in, the, yeah. in, the, in the police jalopy? Yeah. Come on. Here's the worst thing about David Iyer, because... He probably thinks Will Smith is Denzel Washington. Here's, here's the the worst thing about David Iyer, is, is... He keeps making movies. The worst part of that Suicide Squad was just the name of the movie and not of his... Uh, oh, oh, not his career! <laughs> so, anyway, um, after the film uh, with Brad Pitt called Fury that yeah. David Iyer did, uh, that... And I think that movie's okay. Like, it's not like I think everything he does no, is shit. Here's the thing, though. I really enjoyed that film. I thought it was a very well done World War II film that wasn't necessarily overstuffed with stuffy World War II, the usual jargon, whatever. Every single film he's made since then has been terrible. Um, and they've progressively gotten worse. But here's the thing. Yeah. I feel like if you take his good movies, which I think Fury is one of them, and his bad movies, it's they're all indicative of the fact that he is not willing to step outside of his very close-minded mm-hmm. view of masculinity and just, I don't know, violent, whatever. Fuck it. I don't Wait, give is that, a shit. Doesn't he have that prison escape movie with Arnold, too, I think? Oh, I does he? With, is that Arnold and Stallone? Sylvester Stallone? I he did think. that? I think so. Maybe. I don't know. Anyway. It would it would fall into line. Though. Yeah, it would. Yeah. So anyway, fuck bright. There we go. Thanks, buddy. Anytime. All right. So final category, uh, continuing with the worst theme, and that's the worst scene of the year. So I did have a runner-up for this as well, and that was the baby-eating scene, Mother, which I thought was just <laughs> stupid. Oh, uh, wow. There's another baby-eating scene. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were like... I know that babies taste best. Yeah. 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 Um, that whole scene, I thought the beginning of it, I actually thought was pretty well done and enjoyable. There's an uncomfortable tension to like them passing it along. Are you just talking about the actual? I was referring to when the entire thing just starts to go to shit before we arrive at the baby scene. Okay. Uh, when we have like the press there and you have all the flashes and everything happening, I thought it was a very uncomfortable scene. Uh, and then we have the whole baby scene happen, which when the baby gets taken, okay, fine, whatever. It pees. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but when we arrive at the end of that, uh, and just the idea of them all just chowing down on this baby, and I'm just like, man, you know what? Fuck this scene. Fuck this movie. I was, like, teetering with being on board, and then when that happened, I'm like, you know what? I don't need this. I don't no. need this in my I life. Know. And because... It's not because they ate a baby, because that also happened in The Witch, and The Witch is an okay film. Um, and it's Snowpiercer. 
Well, maybe Whatever it's best in Um But in this film... We're not against baby eating. We just want to make that clear. But in this film, it just seemed like the final just pushover of, well, you know what? This movie sucks, and I, I don't care for this. I don't like what this film is doing, and it's not because they are eating babies. It's because of the idea that this is where we're going to end up with this film, so mm. fuck this. Um, the actual worst scene for me, um, and it was the biggest disappointment for me for the entire year, was the final reveal in the movie Jigsaw, which I thought was the dumbest thing I'd seen in the cinema <laughs> all year. I thought a lot. Yeah, because, <laughs> oh man... Um, I love those movies. I know you do. <laughs> I know you too. Uh, and the scene with John Kramer, I thought was actually pretty inventive and interesting. Yeah, how they weaved him in and kept him with the whole story. But that final reveal was so fucking stupid. Um, and yeah, boy, I couldn't, I couldn't give a shit less about the series now. So, yeah, that's my worst scene of the year because fuck that series right now. I love it. <laughs> yeah. My worst scene of the year is also from Mother, and it's interesting that you chose the baby scene because I feel like as, I could choose a completely different scene as, from yeah, you. As, as, as crass as that was, as as alarming as that was, like that's definitely that's that's definitely the worst one of the worst scene, the one of the peak worst scenes in that film. But for me, it wasn't the breaking point. My breaking point was much earlier in the film. The opening credits. Nope. Nope. It was um it was when they introduce uh Kirsten Wiggs character of oh. the of the Herald yeah. and she's basically like the the book dealer for uh for Javier Bardem's character. Man, I thought you were going to go with the the, no. the Cain and Abel scene. No, 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 no. no. Right. It's not it's, not, it's not the Cain and Abel like scene. Like I hate that it's movie, not, but that's a good scene. I it's like not the Cain and Abel scene. It's when <laughs> the house gets super fucked up. And it turns into like a war pit. It, it looks like something out of like a like oh. a like a PlayStation Four yeah. like live action yep. commercial. Like, oh, there's yeah. there's, there's Call of Duty happening in this room. The camera could go in and any there's room. God, there's God of War happening in this room. I yeah. was like, no. And and then it goes to Kirsten Wick's character, where she has like these two rows of, of people who are lying on the floor with the, the 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 fucking pillowcases on their head, and she decides to like take two guns and just. Walk down and down the, the the alley between them, and just starts summarily executing both of them. And I realize, wait a minute, this is a metaphor for the parting of the Red Sea. This is so fucking stupid. I cannot believe you did this. Doesn't she have a line too where she's like, "This is art" or something? Like yeah, that. yeah. She yeah. looks at it. And yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was just like, "This is the stupidest shit." <laughs> I have ever seen. Uh, wow. Um, but yeah, that's my that's my worst scene. He thought he was going to marry Jennifer Lawrence. He thought that he no, he didn't. I don't think he thought he was going to marry Jennifer Lawrence. I think he thought that he was going to get praise for this film. <laughs> well, he I th- certainly I, was. I, I think he cares more about that than he cared about that. But yeah, he at the very certainly least, you have to call it looking punk. for it. Yeah. Oh god. Yeah. My worst scene in any movie. Um, y- you guys are going to call this cheating, but you haven't seen the movie, so you can't say anything. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, but my worst scene uh, of 2017 is every scene of the snowman. <laughs> <laughs> because there's a difference. <laughs> there's a difference between being the worst. There's a difference. 
Mr. Policeman, I gave you all the clues. (laughs) Yeah. There's a difference between being like the worst film of the year, which I firmly believe is bright, and just being a movie in which somehow every single storyboarded scene is the worst possible version of itself. And this is a movie in which uh, Michael Fassbender body slams Rebecca Ferguson's like he's a WWE uh, wrestler. Isn't his uh, name Harry Holt? Yep, his name is Harry Holt, but that's taken from the uh, the, this, the book series. It doesn't so. make it any better. No, it doesn't. Um, <laughs> his, uh, the opening prologue features a child watching his mom get raped. Uh, this is a movie in which... Um, God, what's his name from Whiplash? Uh, J.K. Simmons. J.K. Simmons uh, plays an ultra-villain who, very blasé-esque, takes pictures of topless women that's being presented to him for him to fuck. Like, like nothing in this movie is done with any ounce of uh, competitiveness. And even the things that can be explained in real life, like Val Kilmer's horrible cameo because I feel bad because that's one of the worst scenes in the entire movie and then you read the fact that he was apparently healing from mouth cancer so you like you get a real life context as to what but then unfortunately this is probably a horrible thing but like then you're like why didn't he just why wasn't he just recast like we've recasted for so many more offensive reasons yeah. where I would feel like that would be an understandable because you unfortunately can no longer do the part without Right. Okay, fine. Maybe his character has mouth cancer, but that doesn't explain why everything in this movie is so discombobulated that each scene is its own new treat. And um uh yeah, it's it's just like I don't think it's actually I genuinely don't think it's one of the worst movies ever made. But when you're watching it scene by scene, you're just wondering how this happened. Didn't they like like overshoot and they weren't able to put everything in the that's, fucking film. That sounds about and right. And they had to cut some it, shit out. It's a, it's a mess. And it didn't make any with. sense in the end. Yeah. Well, the other thing is that they thought this was going to be a film series. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's based on a very popular, I mean, seriously, very popular uh, book series by Joe Nespo. But I liked the trailer, and then I heard about the film. I was like, damn, that's this damn show. I'll admit that when I did see the trailer, I was like, it didn't look like great, but I was like, oh, a good mediocre thriller. Uh, but that movie is like a version of that trailer where it, if it's edited the same way, it makes no sense. I want to see it sometime. I, I I would definitely rewatch it once. <laughs> Probably no more than that. Um, <laughs> before we end, can we do not a thirteenth category, but a literal, just a five second thing, where each one of us names one film that I would say two things, which is like either call it your most underrated film or just the film that you would recommend any viewer give a second chance to if you didn't like it. I can go first. Okay. My pick for that is that I think anybody who didn't love or like Alien Covenant should watch it one more time. Not because it will persuade you to necessarily love it, but I genuinely think there are some interesting progressions on what Prometheus set out to do, and I think it does it in a slightly better way for me at least, um, that I think I can totally understand why anybody would just be put off by a first-time viewing, but... I think it was a very fun mismatch of the original horror of the series and uh, Michael Fassbender just fucking tearing it up as two Davids. 
Yeah. So anyway, I generally think anybody should give that a second look. So the film I would pick for that um, that category uh, would be uh, the film that came out in very early 2017 that is right up my alley, which was the uh, Ben Affleck film Live by Night. Okay. Uh, which was a very wonderful gangster film uh, that really had all the elements that anyone who truly does enjoy gangster films would like and i mean gangster films really peaked in the in this generation ish in the like mid to late 90s yeah eh, maybe early 90s to mid to late 90s but since then i mean they've come and gone but there's not been a lot of great films and not that this is a great film um but it's a very enjoyable gangster film that has a fabulous final act um and I thought it was very enjoyable and flew under the radar and had a, a lot of wonderful performances. Um, and just a film that I think a lot of people didn't see, and I think they probably should have. So, yep, that would be my choice for a film that I think people should should really give a chance to at some point. Right on. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting category. Um, I don't know if I have any... <clears throat> I'm putting everybody on the spot because we did not discuss this. Any Any sort of title that leaps immediately to my mind but i would have to say i would i agree with nick on on alien covenant i think i i I would choose that as my my pick because and i know we talked about this on that episode but the thing about the whole alien franchise as it exists now is that there is no there's no way you're going to make a film that's as novel as alien or as as paradigm as, as 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 stark of a paradigm shift as aliens right everything that happens within this entire franchise since those two films exists between these two polar opposites you may skew a little bit towards alien you may skew a little bit towards aliens but you cannot exist outside of that continuum this one is what i will say about alien covenant if someone was disappointed by it is that what i enjoyed about this and I think I've made my feelings about Prometheus very clear yeah. in the past, is that I feel like at least it fucking committed to its identity as an alien film because what confounded and, and infuriated me most about Prometheus is that it really did not know what it wanted to be. It does it 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 it, it was as amorphous as the, the the sort of life cycle of its black ooze. It was almost like a microcosm of its own development and its own struggle to conform to the shape of of anything, whether it wanted to go for being like a a, 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 a cosmic sci-fi alien horror film or if it wanted to be this more virtuosic like space odyssey, like questioning the, the, the role of humanity in the larger span of the universe. Like it just it it, it, it it was fucking confounding. This, at least, it locks into one gear, and even if it doesn't, like, go all the way, even if it just it, – it's bogged down by a bunch of other shit, at least you know – at least you know what fucking car you're driving, okay? Yeah. At least it's going down the road. Well, and not to mention, 
at the very least, too, uh, there are Prometheus fans out there. I am right. one of them. Alex is one of them. And yet, I kind of like that this movie basically tries to please both camps, which I think is what leads to a lot of the negative reactions to this movie. Right. But you literally have David playing the flute with himself mm-hmm. in a cave while an alien is attacking a couple in a shower. Like, if you are not on board for that, then I don't know why you're an alien diehard fan to begin with. Yeah. Anyway. Even though it was completely obvious to me and probably a lot of people that are watching it, uh, the ending scene of this film with uh, him freezing. Um, What's her name? Yeah, you would know the actress's name. Right? Uh, Catherine Watterson? Yeah. yeah. Freezing her and basically her coming to the realization that that is David and not Walter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then him walking off with the, the song playing, which I can't remember which one it is right now, but at the flight same... of the Valkyries. Yep. Yeah. Okay. I think so. Thank yeah. you, Jusan. Yeah. Um, that is a fantastic finale. Um, in ultimately what I thought was a very underwhelming film. Mm-hmm. Also, but... Danny McBride is used here as like a pretty surprising character. Like he's obviously got a couple quips, but the fact that he's actually one one of the two still alive characters by the end is both surprising and also kind of endearing. And depending on the future of this of this franchise, given the the acquisition of 20th Century Fox by the Walt Disney Corporation, we don't know. I, I don't know what the development of a of a sequel to this is as it as it stands right now. I haven't heard any news about that. But honestly, I think that. This is fine. This is a fine ending point. Like, it'd be, yeah. regardless of how you feel about the relative um, quality of the film itself, but like you said, the ending of this, you know what he's gonna do. Yeah. You know what he's gonna fucking do. All those those human embryos. He's going to use them as fuck them. He's going to use them as petri dishes in order to cultivate new xenomorphs. That's that's what he's gonna do. And we don't need to we don't need to know more. That's fine. That's great. We know I just, it. He's the bad guy. Whatever. I just yeah. want to say my secret plan to turn this episode into a stealth alien covenant pitch has worked. Way to go, buddy. So anyways, uh, thank everybody out there for, for catching up with us for this episode, uh, detailing our top six films and also uh, a more in-depth look at uh, 2017. It was definitely a good year in film and uh, one of the better ones in the last three to four years, I would say. So starting off 2018 on Film Tank, finally, almost at the end of February, uh, next week, uh, Sam Shamar is going to be joining us, uh, the three of us. So it'll be four full table here uh, talking about the new Marvel film, Black Panther. Um, Black. I'm interested to know everybody's thoughts on this, as uh, I know that the three of us have already actually seen the film. So I'm very interested in what uh, you and Sam and I have to say. Um, Tucson, I hope you can make it, but you know, uh, if you can't, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So anyways, that... Sorry that I want a unique perspective on this. Oh, yeah. my God. So at any rate, that discussion is coming up on our next episode. From Tucson Egan, Nick Cheney, myself, Alex Diekman, thank you very much for catching up with us at Film Tank, and we will catch up with you next time.